pandemic struck last spring, remote work went from a niche reserved for just a few workers to the mainstream. Workers in a wide range of sectors and industries who had always worked in offices found themselves required to work from home. Home lives began to merge with work lives. Hundreds of thousands of people who lived in cities to be near their jobs found themselves looking for homes in suburban and rural areas. Urban offices and high-rises emptied out, and people began to ask, will we ever go back? Should we go back? To get a better sense for how the remote work transition is going, we looked into what the existing research on the topic might tell us about remote work practices, and then invited some experts on the topic to discuss those findings with us. If you'd like to read that report, you can find it at our website at aei.org. Today's podcast is part one of our remote work conversation. Part two will be released in two weeks. I hope you find the discussion on this important topic useful as you think about this important new dynamic in American work life. On behalf of the American Enterprise Institute, I want to welcome everyone to our latest web event, The Future of Remote Work, Balancing the Trade-Offs. This event is a follow-up to the report we published late last month titled The Trade-Offs of Remote Work, Building a More Resilient Workplace for the Post-COVID-19 World. Throughout the event, if you have any questions, please email them to me at matthew.ledger at aei.org and follow along at Twitter at hashtag remoteworkAEI. My name is Matt Ledger. I'm a research analyst in the domestic policy department here at AEI. I'm joined by my boss and colleague, Brent Orell. Together, Brent and I spearheaded the research and publication of this report, and we're excited to be hosting you today. Brent is a resident fellow at AEI, where he works on job training, workforce development, and criminal justice reform. Specifically, his research focuses on expanding opportunity for all Americans through work readiness and job training and improving the criminal justice system. Before joining AEI, Mr. Rell worked in the executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government for over 20 years. He was nominated by President George Bush to lead the Employment and Training Administration of the U.S. Department of Labor, and he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Administration for Children and Families at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. With that, Brent, I will hand it over to you to say hello to everyone. Thanks a lot, Matt. Great to be with all of you here on the panel, as well as with our audience this morning. As Matt mentioned, I'm a resident fellow here at AEI, where I lead research on topics related to vocational calling, career development, work, and criminal justice reform. For those of you who aren't familiar with AEI, we're a public policy think tank dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. In my over two years here at AEI, few topics that we've sought to address have generated as much interest as remote work. And the reasons for this are clear. Past nine months, the U.S. has moved from an economy where only a small fraction of workers, around 7%, were working remotely, to one where between 25 and 30% of American workers are working away from traditional offices. This is a sea change in work habits that can only have been the result of the need to protect workers from infection by the COVID virus. The vast American economy has, in effect, become a real-time, natural experiment in remote work. Our report on this topic is not intended to give a detailed analysis of what's happened, which I think will require years to achieve and keep many researchers and academics fully employed in the pursuit of that understanding. Rather, our report is intended to provide a foundation for the existing research on the topic, as well as some insights into how the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated trends that were already underway 
before the disease struck. To help us explore this today, Matt Ledger, an AEI research analyst, and I have assembled a panel of expert researchers and practitioners in the remote workspace to respond to our report and engage you in a conversation on the topic. Our first panelist is Laurel Ferrer, who is the founder of Distribute Consulting and the Remote Work Association. Laurel starts, strengthens, and leverages virtual workforces to solve corporate and socioeconomic concerns. She's a global thought leader on the topic of remote work and collaborates with the world's leading businesses and governments to eliminate virtual worker discrimination, prevent policy retraction, increase remote job accessibility, train distributed leaders, and design economic initiatives. Additionally, she also shares her expertise as a Forbes contributor, subject matter expert for business education curriculum and a virtual software product advisor. We're also joined by Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, who is a senior fellow in governance studies and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Lee researches public policy designed to enable equitable access to technology across the U.S. and to harness its power to create change in communities across the world. Dr. Lee has a forthcoming book on the U.S. divide titled Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. That's forthcoming this year, 2021, from Brookings Press. She sits on various U.S. federal agency and civil society boards. She has a Ph.D. and an M.A. from Northwestern University and graduated from Colgate University. Krista McCretis serves as a research professor at the W.P. Kearney School of Business in Arizona at Arizona State University. He's a digital fellow at the Initiative on the Digital Economy at the MIT Sloan School of Management and a digital fellow at the Digital Economy Lab at Stanford University. Crystal's previously served on the White House Council of Economic Advisors, managing cybersecurity, technology, and space activities, and was a non-resident fellow at the Cybersecurity Project in the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Crystal's primary academic research focuses on labor economics, behavioral economics, the digital economy, and personal finance and well-being. He earned a bachelor's in economics and a minor in math at Arizona State, as well as dual masters and PhDs in economics and management science and engineering at Stanford University. So with that, I'm going to hand the presentation of the report over to Matt to walk us through main points of its content. Then we'll have each of our panelists give a response to the report from their perspective, engage in a little bit of panel discussion, and then open for Q&A. So, Matt, let's get started on this. All right. Thank you, Brent. So, in the face of stay-at-home orders and economic shutdowns, millions of employers and employees were forced to do their jobs at home in isolation. Employers that had experience with remote work were more easily able to make this transition, while others were left scrambling to distribute their workforces on an extremely accelerated timeline. A remote work evolution that was supposed to take decades happened over the course of just a few short weeks. Before the pandemic, remote work was gaining in popularity, but was mostly reserved for a portion of the highly educated and highly paid knowledge workers of our economy. Code provided a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experiment with remote work on a massive scale. Now, a new headline emerges every week about another company announcing plans to continue remote work into the future. Estimates suggest that upwards of 30% of the workforce will continue to work remotely at least part-time after the pandemic subsides, a notable drop from the pandemic high point of about 50%, but a significant increase compared to pre-COVID levels. 
While it appears that this remote work experiment was largely successful, it may be years before we fully understand how this shift has impacted workers, employers, and broader society. There have been countless studies on remote work, but given its minimal impact before the pandemic relative to in-office work, there's still a lot we do not know. Our goal for this report was to pull together the existing research on remote work to try to make sense of all that we know so far, with a particular focus on understanding the positive and negative trade-offs faced by both employers and employees. We also wanted to shed light on the critical barriers in a way of an equitable shift to remote work and to point towards areas of needed research. And we will now briefly walk through some of the report's findings. So employers face some pretty hefty trade-offs with remote work. On the positive end, the bulk of evidence on remote work's impact points towards remote work helping to increase productivity. At the very least, productivity does not waver from that of in-office work. Companies can also experience operational cost savings in the form of reduced real estate and building maintenance costs. Savings can also be found in the human resources, training, and recruitment functions, as remote workers often have far lower turnover rates. On that note, remote work-friendly companies have a recruitment advantage. Even before the pandemic, the workforce was increasingly seeking out jobs with at least partial remote work options. Additionally, for companies that struggle to fill critical skills gaps, remote work provides an opportunity to expand their recruitment capacity, perhaps even globalize their search for talent. As we learned from the pandemic, remote work helps to bolster resilience in the face of major disruptions such as natural disasters. And also an added benefit of remote work is that companies can curb their environmental impact by reducing their real estate footprint and waste reduction and by keeping their employees out of cars and off the road. On the flip side, employers risk losing or at least diminishing organizational culture. There are many creative ways companies have deployed digital tools during the pandemic to help maintain some level of team cohesion and social activity, but these tools simply cannot serve to replace face-to-face human interaction. Additionally, transitioning to a remote work model can make management of staff and monitoring work activities more difficult. If nothing else, it requires a rethinking of how productivity is measured, which requires an operational and a cultural shift. Also, quite simply, not everyone likes to work remotely and not everyone's job is a good fit for remote work. So shaping a remote work policy that works for everyone can be a difficult task. And trying to do so can ultimately complicate matters further and inhibit the success of telework expansion. It's also important to point out that a distributed workforce can increase exposure to cybersecurity risks, requiring companies bolster their defenses against nefarious actors. Lastly, one little talked about negative impact of remote work is the effect that it can have on workers who are stuck in the office. In-office workers have shown to experience dips in their own productivity and have reported a loss of team cohesion when working with remote colleagues. This can in turn negatively impact their own career advancement or simply job satisfaction. Employees likewise have some trade-offs to manage. Research shows that remote workers are more satisfied with their jobs, which can have positive impacts on their personal lives. With less time commuting and more time to spend at home with family or taking on hobbies, remote work gives workers back invaluable time. Working remotely can also make people healthier. Long commutes have been shown to increase stress levels that can lead to poor health. Reducing or outright eliminating commutes can help to minimize these health risks among the workforce. Additionally, without a commute, employees can sleep longer and have more time to exercise, all things that help to make them happier, healthier, and more productive. Employees can also save money on vehicle and transportation-related costs and eating out for lunch. They can also reduce costs associated with requiring professional clothing. Some studies have shown that workers can save anywhere from $2,000 to $6,500 annually when transitioning from in-office to remote work. And lastly, within the bounds that their job allows, workers benefit from increased autonomy to work at least at times and in conditions they are most comfortable, helping them to perform at their very best. Unfortunately, there's a dark side to working remotely. Many workers struggle to separate work life and home life when they happen in the same place, which can lead to burnout in some instances. While commutes can be detrimental to people's health, they sometimes serve as a separation tool that helps put a definitive end to the workday. Working remotely can also increase a sense of social isolation that can be detrimental to an individual's mental health, and it can be difficult for workers to enjoy their jobs when they aren't doing it alongside their work friends. 
As the pandemic has dragged on, research has shown that workers are starting to feel the strain from prolonged isolation and that it may be offsetting the health benefits they initially got from the opportunity to work remotely. In addition to preventing FaceTime with friends and colleagues, remote work also prevents employees from getting valuable FaceTime with their managers and superiors. Some studies have shown that this can negatively impact a worker's ability to climb their career ladder. Then there's the phenomena of Zoom fatigue, which we are all likely familiar with at this point. And of course, there's the issue of inconsistent communication with teammates through digital channels. Lastly, with the explosion of remote work comes more job opportunities for people, but it also comes with increased competition for those jobs. The competition for talents no longer restricted to the geographic boundaries of an organization's office location, so many workers in search of remote jobs have to match up against a broader talent pool. In some cases, workers may also develop a sense of fear that they'll lose their job to someone that's quote-unquote more affordable somewhere else. So a recurring theme throughout this presentation is that working remotely works most of the time, but not always, and it often works for a lot of people, but not everyone. In several case studies highlighted in the report, workers who were given the option to work remotely or in office were most productive when they self-sorted into the scenario that worked best for them individually. Additionally, we can maximize the benefits of remote work and minimize the downsides by staggering the work week with a mix of in-office and remote work. Combined, this hybrid work model can help our economy and society balance these trade-offs. However, it's important to note that in the face of remote work's rising popularity, even before the pandemic, many organizations attempted to keep up with the trend and rapidly develop their own programs, However, they quickly found themselves reversing those policies, discovering that the arrangement didn't work for them. So as the pandemic drags on and remote work policies become more permanent, we may find that in the rush to maximize the benefits, we may ultimately find some cracks in the model. So while this may cause short-term pain for many employers, it will ultimately help our economy reach a satisfactory equilibrium. So while remote work is becoming the new normal, there are some serious hurdles to overcome in order to ensure an equitable shift to this working model. The first is disparities in broadband access that continue to persist across the country. While some progress has been made in this area, there's a still a long way to go in bridging the digital divide. There's also a challenge which we've called the corporate digital divide. This refers to the stark divide in access to digital tools between smaller businesses and larger enterprises. If we think about these issues as part of the infrastructure that helps businesses grow and thrive, it makes sense to consider how the government can support and incentivize smaller firms in gaining access to digital tools to help them enable digital operations. Lastly, not everyone has access to comfortable at-home work environments to do their jobs remotely. For some, it can be simply a lack of privacy. For others, it could be lack of space. Others may have more serious issues that prevent them from being able to work remotely in an efficient manner. These are broader systemic issues that must be addressed as we continue to expand remote work options going forward. And so before taking our findings into consideration, we felt it important to point out that there are limitations to what we know about remote work based on the research that's been conducted to date. The studies done so far have been limited in scope and scale, often focusing on one particular company or industry and not necessarily representative of all companies or industries. Most studies were also conducted within companies that were friendly towards remote work and were more willing to experiment. These companies also often had a workflow that worked well with the remote work model, skewing results heavily towards positive outcomes. A lot of the research was also focused on work done in isolation that did not require much collaboration, communication, or teamwork. This means we do not know much about how team-based work is impacted when shifting to a remote setting. Lastly, there are virtually no longitudinal studies on the impact of remote work on employers and, or employees. This leaves a significant gap in our knowledge about how the positive or negative impacts of remote work change over time. Additionally, we've been given an opportunity to experiment with remote work thanks to COVID-19, but because of the pandemic and the economic and social disruptions that have come with it, our experiments may ultimately be impacted by these external stressors. It's important to account for these impacts when evaluating the effectiveness of remote work during this time. So moving forward, policymakers can serve as a partner to industry in three ways. First, by examining laws and regulations that incentivize or discourage remote work and considering new opportunities for reform. Second, the government can play a supportive role by assessing the impact of remote work and educating business leaders across sectors to inform them when shaping remote work policies. 
And lastly, the government should invest in research and evaluations that improve our understanding of how remote workers can best be supported through and beyond this digital transformation we're all experiencing. And with that, we will hand it over to Brent to do the panel discussion. Thanks a lot, Matt. Well done summarizing the report. So now we want to just turn to our panelists who we, of course, provided the report to ahead of time, ask them to read it, give it some thought. Each of them comes at this from a somewhat different angle. So I want to give them a few minutes just to touch on what they perceive within the report as being consistent or inconsistent with their own perspectives or additional insights that might be useful for the audience. So I think we'll start with Laurel and just have her as somebody who's been working closely with all sorts of companies and people that are attempting to adapt to the new normal and give us her thoughts on what we're learning about remote work and her thoughts on the report. Thank you. Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is all come to a very mutual understanding and agreement that what we're experiencing right now is not remote work. What we're experiencing right now as a global society is a workplace contingency plan to respond to an international pandemic. So the conditions that we're working in are not the conditions that I'm used to. I've been working remotely for 14 years. This year has still been astronomically stressful and different for me as well. Never in the history of remote work have we ever had to work from home, learn from home, be teachers and employees at the same time, worship from home, shop from home. All of that has never existed before. So this is not ideal circumstances. So if decision makers or employees are feeling stressed or wondering how in the world do people do this all the time, they don't do this all the time. This is not remote work. So that's really critical for all of us to start this conversation to understand that long term in a conversation about sustainability of remote work, there is much more control over prevention strategies for the barriers that were discussed in the report. So problems like micromanagement, isolation, burnout, when we have an opportunity to come into this model of working with intention, preparation, and planning, those are all barriers that are quite easy to prevent if you know how. But because the entire world came into this with no preparation, no intention, no planning, you don't know what you don't know. And so they didn't know how to prevent you know, people from feeling informationally isolated, socially isolated. You know, people are complaining of, I've just, I'm alone all day, every day. Well, yeah, so am I. Am I usually in, in 2019 and beyond? No. Most remote workers are working from co-working spaces. They're, if they don't have an ideal home or office environment, they go to a co-working space. If they feel lonely because they're not around their coworkers all the time, they have a strong and healthy and dynamic social life. Like there is so much stress and dynamics and elements to life in general that are causing more stress and pressure. Yes, things like burnout, right? Burnout is a common problem for remote workers, but who's not feeling burned out right now? Like we, we've got a pandemic, we've got social injustice, we've had one of those most stressful national elections of all time, like we're all burned out regardless of what's happening at work. So I think it's very, very important to clarify what's happening right now are abnormal circumstances. The difference is when we start going back to work or things start opening back up to normal, what has happened right now at an organizational level is a workplace change. If people want to prevent the barriers that are discussed in the report and 
access the benefits that are discussed in the report, they have to come into this with intention and planning, like I said. And what that means is thinking about this as a virtual organizational development change management process. So you are impacting, changing, influencing all facets of your your organization, workflows, processes, expectations, resources, all of those have to be updated in order to start operating as a virtual organization. Because that's what went wrong historically in those reports that you referenced where there was retraction policies. They continued to operate as usual as a physical co-located company while some people were working off-site. And that's what created worker discrimination and imbalanced employee experience and siloed information. So the more when we're thinking about it sustainably, we have the opportunity to think about it with intention, planning, and preparation. It's going to be a very different ballgame. Very good. I've got about five questions based on what you said, but we'll hold those for right now. Nicole, your thoughts? I don't have anything else to say after Laurel. <laughs> I think she's completely right. <laughs> Laurel, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to pay you as opposed to uh, anybody else to actually talk through my stress right now. When it comes to, quote unquote, not remote work, I think I can say your your report is timely. I mean, Matt, Brent, you always bring in the right topics at the right time. I'm always happy to be a guest with you guys when you're putting out this research, Brent, on this. Because the bottom line is, as Laurel said, this is not normal. For those of us who have worked remotely before, we've had much more control. I mean, it's so funny. My daughter recently said to me, if this is what people do as adults for a living, I don't want to do it. Uh, because essentially all she sees me do is get on these presentations. And now I want to add to Laurel, we've actually seen, as in your report has suggested, even more intrusions on people's personal space, you know, whether it's, you know, as a parent being able to handle the fact that, you know, I've got to figure out what room I'm in today. If my child is is doing her schooling and my partner may be doing something else or the dog may want his own space. Bottom line is I'm letting people into my home as well. And those actually have disparities. So you guys mentioned broadband, but I've often thought about in the beginning of this, you know, I need to have a bookcase behind me, but my bookcase is downstairs and have put out these very aggressive requests for my family to sort of help me shape the right space as if I'm in my office. And as Laurel said, I'm not. And I think it's important for us to realize that whatever we're going through right now is not the normal course of business when it comes to being able to have some of the freedoms of remote work provide. So I, I want to reflect upon the report. I, I think you're completely right. I mean, honestly, I have not, as an individual, really wanted to go back to having a commute. I mean, I think that also was very stressful in, in its own right here in Washington, D.C. So the ability to work from home actually added a couple of hours to my own productivity. I find myself getting up earlier than I would at any other time to basically use that time before people actually log on to the computer to do other things. At the same token, I also find that it has been helpful to be with my family. So I think some of the positives that Matt pointed out in the presentation speak to me. Last year around this time, I visited seven countries and over, you know, 15 cities. This year, I've gone nowhere. And in fact, you know, I've imported myself to places like India and Korea, which actually is great because I get to actually use the time I would have been on an airplane spending time with my family. And that actually has been, I think, an increased quality of life, although I think my kids are probably getting sick of me as much as I'm getting sick of them. But at the same token, you know, I think that there are some physical adjustments that we've made and some of them probably for the better. Now, what's the trade-off? I, I was just with my doctor the other day. We're not moving, as Laurel said. We're, we're sitting in these same stationary spots. 
I'm sure in addition to what we're going to find long-term when it comes to work, we're going to find long-term trends in terms of health because of this immobility that we've all experienced. The fact that we're sitting and we're using our hands in certain ways, or we're not necessarily, you know, therapeutic in how we actually manage this time, I think becomes more concerning. I find that folks like us probably do this really well. I don't know about my research associates at Brookings, the extent to which not having a direct leader down the hall to bounce off ideas works. If anything, I'll tell a funny story. Our particular RA has moved from room to room to sort of figure out which is the best place as he shares apartment with other folks, right? In the beginning, just bought something, but it's things like that. I think this is really a privilege for people who have this ability to work at home. If you're a person who really cannot work at home because you're not necessarily in a big enough space or you don't have the bandwidth in terms of broadband or you have little kids running around. I mean, I I was on a call yesterday and the poor woman was holding her daughter while she was presenting. These are the challenges that I think to Laurel's point, like they're not necessarily the normal factors that we consider remote working. Remote working historically, I think, has always been around giving an employee some flexibility and independence to manage these life stressors and life goals, you know, whether you're a new parent, whether you're a person whose job does not require you to come in, like many of us at a think tank, but that doesn't work for everybody. And I think it's important, I would add to Laurel's point, that companies also have values that are embedded in what this looks like. I mean, there's lots of discussion of companies that are not going to go back into the office or give people that option. But I also think that you have to have value. Work has to stop at five o'clock. There are so many people like myself who start at six and we're still going till six the next morning simply because we're now attached to this communication culture that assumes that you are always available via video, you are always online, and you can manage the plethora of other responsibilities that you have. And I also want to point out one last thing that you all said in this report that I think is really important, while also assuming that everybody has broadband. I find it to be interesting, right, as a person who focuses on this. That, you know, we always think it's people who are disproportionately poor or of color or older that don't have broadband. There are some folks that live in rural areas that are on panels with me and their broadband is, is kicking out the same way that others. That's why I call my book The New Underclass, because folks based on where you live do not have access. And there are people like ourselves. I, I literally find my bill higher than it's ever been, you know, in all my utilities, but I had to also get an extender because having multiple people online at the same time was stressing my own network. And I live relatively close to a lot of connectivity um, uh, means. So with that, I think you're right on with your report. I've not yet seen anyone that I know that has been very excited about being home this long, (laughs) but I think it goes to what Laurel talks about. It's not necessarily the working at home. It's the working at home without boundaries. And I think that lack of structure and framework and values around what this actually means for companies that are considering, hey, this is a cost savings. We're not paying real estate. We're not doing this, that. We're also compromising some quality of life indicators that I think as you expand upon this research, Brett, will have greater effects because loneliness is real. I just happen to have kids and you know where you live is real and the circumstances in which you actually are encased in this work environment are also real. So I'll, I'll end it there and look forward to the discussion. That's terrific. And yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely on our agenda in terms of especially digging deep to the experiences of work. There'd be a lot of economic analysis on this, you know, in terms of productivity and GDP growth and a whole bunch of things. But what we don't want to get lost in this is sort of what's it look like from the standpoint of the people who are being most directly impacted in terms of the workforce. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.